Welcome to Season 2 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 41, Jiangxi, uh, Blood in the Banquet Hall. Today, we are joined by Banana Chan, a game designer and RPG writer that worked on an exquisite crime, suburban consumption of the monstrous, Demios Academy, D&D, uh, Van Richen's Guide to Ravencloft, and Betrayal at House on the Hill, 3rd Edition, plus so many other projects. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, of course. So like my first question, before even asking how you got into the industry, I want to make sure, did I pronounce your game's title correctly? So we were talking a little bit about this off air. Uh, basically the word Jiangshu is, uh, it's a little like hard to pronounce because there are so many different ways of pronouncing it. Um, and so I, over the course of the Kickstarter, we learned that like the the word Jiangshu was pronounced I believe Jiangxi in Taiwan. And so during that time, we like did some research and we were just like, oh, like, you know, that's just based on like the accent or like uh, the way that they say uh, specific words in Mandarin in Taiwan. Uh, for me personally, because I grew up in Hong Kong, the way that I learned that word, Jiangshu, I learned it through, um, through school. And the way that we basically were taught it was like, a Beijing style of Mandarin. And so because I also have a very heavy accent in Mandarin, uh, I probably like, I'm not even saying it correctly. It's, uh, it's a like heavily accented Mandarin because I speak Cantonese. And so therefore, like the way that it's said, um, I typically say Jiangshu, um, but you know, other people from different regions of uh, the Chinese diaspora might say it differently. That's so cool. Well, then I'm, I'm going to stick or try to stick to how you say it then for this interview. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. So then how did you get into the gaming industry? So I got into the actual industry through LARPing um, and also through uh, through board games. So it was like in parallel with one another. I think that like the two things like just happen side by side. I know it's like two different, very different, uh, different industries, very different hobbies, but when I started LARPing, um, I got really excited for black box LARPing. I got really excited for freeform, American freeform LARPing. And from there, I started writing a couple just to see, you know, if I enjoyed it, if I was like any good at it. Um, and I submitted like a couple to the Golden Cobra Challenge. And from there, I got an honorable, honorable mention. And uh, the second year I submitted, I got, um, I believe it was like a uh, best immersive game or best, I forgot what the title was, but I, I won something from the Golden Cobra Challenge uh, the year after. And from there, I just like got a lot of gigs in writing. Like a lot of people were asking me to to write for tabletop RPGs for their, uh, for their games, like, you know, their scenarios and things like that. Um, in parallel with that, I was meeting a lot of people in the board gaming industry. So uh, I started a company called Game in a Curry, which... Uh, initially started off as like a restaurant review slash board game combination review type of thing. And that evolved into like us publishing games, like our friends games, uh, because yeah. we noticed that it was like really hard for us to, well, it was really hard to, to get a game published, right? Like if you're a beginner designer, it's like 
typically kind of hard, especially if you're more introverted, especially if you're, oh, yeah. um, yeah, exactly. And like, if you, you know, can't make it a- to the convention circuit, especially because I wrote a blog post about that. It's just, if you don't have the money or if you're like a stay at home mom or like you just mm-hmm. have to work, there's just so many barriers that actually COVID kind of helped with a little bit with everything yes. moving online, but I completely agree. Exactly. Exactly. So like, you know, if you don't have the funds, if you, uh, just aren't able to like, you know, meet people, then we want to like make it a little bit more accessible. So we started printing our friends games. Our first game was, yeah, Diamonds. It was like a kid's game by uh, Dave Beaver and Brian Soriano. Um, and then from there, we started designing other friends games. So we designed, or sorry, we published other friends games, uh, published and developed other friends games, such as uh, Layer by Tam, uh, Battle of the Boy Bands by uh, Yansu Kim and Vicky Ho. And now we're focusing more on uh, on our own things. So things that I've designed and um, we're focusing on publishing, stuff like that. And so who else is involved in Game in a Curry as far as like owners or co-founders or how that worked? So I am one of the co-founders uh, and the owner. And the other co-founder is uh, my business partner, Herb Furman. So we basically like do all of this together. It's just us basically (laughs) like doing all of this, uh, development and like sometimes even graphic design, uh, speaking with manufacturers, speaking with like, you know, other people to like market the game. Um, like a lot of it is just like contracting, right? Like we contract everything else out. That's amazing. Yeah. I love when you just have like a, I feel like there's a lot of people that it's a two person team. Like um, Mm -hmm. the last episode I recorded also two person team that, you know, took the leap, quit their jobs. And thankfully they had one good Kickstarter and then another and then another. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Like a lot of what we see, I think on social media or like on the internet in general is like, yeah, this, this company, it looks like it's like, not to say that it's not a real company, but like, it looks like a legit thing. Like it looks like, you know, very well polished. It looks like it's like got 50 people or a hundred people working behind it. When in actuality, it's just like two people We're trying very hard to like look very professional. Um, and yeah, we just like spend a lot of time on what we do. That's so amazing. And so then let's switch back over to our spotlight episode. So for anyone who has not played Zhangxi Blood in the Banquet Hall, how do you play the game? Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, it is a tabletop role-playing game. And uh, the story is that you are playing a family, a Chinese-American family or Chinese-Canadian family who's running a restaurant in the 1920s. And at night, uh, the junk should come out. So basically, in the daytime, you're like trying to serve customers, you're trying to, you know, figure things out, you're faced with like oppression. um, And, you know, all the problems that come with like being a part of a marginalized community. And at night, these supernatural horrors come out. And basically, like the supernatural horrors are like a manifestation of like, all of the the terrible things that happen in a day. Um, It's also a metaphor for um, generational trauma. It's a metaphor for like a lot of different things. And so in the game itself, it uses a dice pool of D8s. Um, and when you roll fours, uh, which is like a bad number, like an unlucky number in like Chinese culture, uh, that cancels out the highest number. 
And so you're rolling from this pool of D4s, or sorry, D8s, and uh, the highest number you would get is like an eight. And so a seven and eight is like a success, like a really good success. Um, like a five to six is like a medium success, and a one to three is like a failure. And uh, you're telling stories around the table, and uh, you're going through like different segments of time. So you have uh, the morning, the afternoon, uh, which is usually where like, you know, all the the customer drama comes in. Uh, you have to do your chores in the morning. You have like a deck of cards that just like lists off chores that you have to do. Uh, otherwise, your restaurant goes into decay, which is like one of the ways that the, the game ends, right? So the game could end if you're done with the scenario, you're done playing, you're like, you know, you're okay with just like stopping right there, like as players, or if your restaurant falls into decay and you can no longer keep up with the, the small business that you have. Um, at nighttime, Zhangshu come out and they either attack your customer base or they just like attack everyone and you just have to like make sure that uh, they're they're like at bay, right? You just have to like keep them at bay, make sure that like, you know, they don't uh, turn you into a Zhangshu as well. Because as you take damage, as you take like stress uh, damage, any sort of like uh, emotional, physical harm, um, you have to flip over basically put cards on top of your character sheet and that prevents you from using the things on your character sheet. So on your character sheet, you have skills, you have facets, you have, you know, items maybe on your character sheet. And as things go, like as the game plays, if you take any damage, those things get covered up, you can no longer use them. And you sort of have to like turn more and more into this, like the supernatural evil. The last thing to go on your character sheet are your hopes and dreams. So once that gets covered up, then you flip over all the cards that are on your character sheet um, that you've collected over the course of the game, and you turn into a juncture and you have to like try to to mess with like the rest of the players, right? Try to mess with everyone um, at the table. That's so interesting. So for anyone who doesn't know what a juncture is, would you mind explaining like what that creature? Is? Yes, absolutely. Great question. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. So, a juncture is a um, the best way to explain it that like a lot of people who um, who have like just sort of like been familiar with this uh, this trope is basically a hopping vampire. But technically, it's not really a vampire because when you think of a vampire, you think like oh, a, like a sexy brooding type of creature um who's like still sort of like human right who can like still communicate um a junction is not necessarily like that a junction is actually like a hopping corpse um because uh they are hopping because of rigor mortis like they're actually just like stiff because they yeah. they can't move um because they're dead um and so they're probably a little bit closer to zombies but they don't eat flesh um the initial sort of story about the jiangshu like they are they feed on like your life force your chi and so like that's how you that's how you lose yourself, right? Like you lose yourself through getting, getting the juncture, like feeding off of your chi. So and that's your why the hopes and dreams are your last bit. Oh, so yes. good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. What inspired you to design this game in particular? Um, it's a culmination of things, actually. So Sen and I, we had been wanting to design with one another for a while. Like we'd been talking about like wanting to work together. Um, and so we finally decided to like sit down, put together like this Google Doc and just like write down all of our ideas. Um, the first thing that we talked about was like maybe something that's related to our culture, related to our backgrounds. 
like, let's do something based around that, right? So that's sort of where it came from. And we also saw like a lot of games that were taking like Asian themes, uh, but they weren't necessarily by Asian people. And so we wanted to like make a game about us by us. Um, so that's sort of like where the where the nugget of inspiration came from. Oh, for sure. I feel like representation is really important. And I'm glad that you did that because just off the top of my head, I'm having a hard time trying to think of a few games. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to like, I think like now we're seeing a few more, like especially in the uh, the tabletop role-playing scene. But like, I think when we first designed this, we designed it in, uh, or when we st- started talking about this, this was like in 2018, 20, like late 2017, when we were just like chatting about it. Um, and back then it was just like, oh, we don't see a lot of representation and that's why we need to do something about it. And so that's sort of where it came from. That's so amazing. And so why did you decide on like the 1920s kind of United States, Canada, Chinatown being the location for this RPG in particular? Yeah. So 1920s, it was actually like around the time where people are thinking, oh, you know, it's the age of glamour, like everything is like super glamorous, but it actually wasn't for like a lot of uh, poorer communities, uh, marginalized communities, like people of color, like back then it wasn't that great. Um, mostly because for uh, the Chinese populations, there was the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so that was not very good for like uh, the community there and like a lot of Chinatowns. Um, and there were a lot of like inhibitions for uh, for Chinese people to work, right? Like there were like a lot of rules and regulations on like what they could and couldn't do. And so... Um, during that time, we wanted to sort of like talk about like, why do we talk? Why are we so, you know, fascinated with like restaurant culture? Like when it comes to like uh, Chinese Americans, like our foothold in America is like through the restaurant. Like there is like, you know, there's only a few jobs that we could have done back then, like the Chinese Americans could do back then. And so um, what they could have done was like either own a laundromat or they could like have a grocery store or they could like own a restaurant. Like those were like the few jobs that they could have done back then. And so we want to like explore that theme a little bit more and like talk about like, Oh, like why, you know, why are there these stereotypes? Let's like, you know, dive into them. Let's talk about them and let's see like how we can carry it forth into like today so that we can have a better understanding of like our history and make like, you know, make decisions based on like, you know, how we, uh, how we can like understand things going forward. That's so cool. And so as far as the design went, how much did like real historic events influence the story? Um, it is a lot of history. So, um, we've talked to people where they were just like, this feels like, like a textbook. Um, and we're trying, we were trying not to make it too textbooky, but, um, it does have a lot of history in the actual game itself. So it, uh, gives you like a quick timeline of, um, what happened leading up to like the Chinese Exclusion Act. So we talked a little bit about the, uh, the various things that were happening in China, why people left, uh, the gold rush, um, you know, the, the, the political, uh, things that were happening in the mainland that caused the diaspora to happen. Um, and we also talk about like the, the page act, the, you know, the things leading up to the Chinese exclusion act and everything going forward after that, like the fallout of that. So the 1920s is sort of like the fallout from the Chinese exclusion act. Like, yes, uh, the thing is still in place, like the act is still in place, but it was more of a time where it's just like, okay, like 
you know, this thing is now on place. Like, what do we do about it? How do we go about it? Like, how do people live through this, uh, this difficult time? It's so interesting. The thing I love about RPGs is I'm big into the storytelling aspect, but like the mechanics of how you make it work was the thing that kind of always like made me a little more tentative into starting to try it. But for like this game in particular, did you base the system of like the D8s being used off of something or did you create a system uniquely for the RPG? Oh gosh. So initially we tried to use, um, <laughs> we tried to use this divination tool called Jal Bay, which did not work. Um, so we were like, okay, let's do something from our culture. Let's use like these wooden moon blocks. Uh, and for those of you who aren't familiar, they're like these wooden, um, these wooden blocks are like carved so that they look like half moons. And so uh, they're used in divination, um, specifically through like Taoist divination. And uh, I think sometimes like uh, Chinese Buddhism, where you would basically just like, um, you wouldn't roll them, you would throw them. And uh, based on where they land, it would give you like a various uh, set of outcomes. But we realized like, after playtesting and using the actual uh, moon blocks, uh, we discovered that there was one outcome that never, that just never happened. And so we were just like, okay, screw this. Like, we're not going to use it. Let's stick with dice. Um, and so uh, we're playing around with dice. Like the D8s are definitely something that we wanted to keep in the system itself because D8, the number eight is lucky. Um, in uh in Chinese culture and so it's actually a homonym for the word um I think it's like pros- uh, not prosperity but it's just like uh for like basically like receiving a lot of money right so it's like um eight in Chinese I can say it in Cantonese because I'm not very good at Mandarin but eight is uh bot and so it sounds sort of similar to fat which is like you know sort of like prosperity right so we want to keep that into the game. We want to keep that like sort of, uh, sort of like idea in the game. And, uh, the word for is, uh, say, which means death. And so, uh, it sounds sort of similar to like the number, f- um, four. So four and death sounds sort of similar to one another. They're like homonyms in Cantonese as well. So it's say and say, uh, and so, that was also like a part of the dice mechanics. Everything else, uh, I would say like we also had the inclusion of spirit paper. Spirit paper is based off of a uh, Fulu paper talisman. So uh, a paper talisman, uh, you would see like a lot in pop culture with like Zhangshu movies, like the um, the various like Hong Kong Kung Fu Zhangshu movies. Uh, they would always have like these paper talismans that they would pin on the, the Zhangshu's forehead and that would like freeze them in their tracks. So we wanted to do something similar where we had um, something called spirit paper and basically like uh, you would write down a sentence or a word that brings the family together and that would create the spell. And if it's successful, then you would freeze the Zhangshu in their tracks. You would you know, have that like uh, exciting climax moment where it's just like, Oh, in the story, like suddenly, um, you know, you defeat the Jiangshu, everything is like going really well. And, um, you know, it sort of like starts to end the game. Um, that's what we wanted to do with like, with the, the Fulu talismans where, uh, we took something that you see a lot in like Asian pop culture. That's also something that's like, uh, a part of like esoteric, um, Taoism. And we wanted to like put into, um, like a pop culture version of our game. 
I, I do love that the four is death and you are literally killing off the highest number in your dice rolls. That's so yes. cool. Oh Thank my you. gosh. I love that. I haven't talked to many people where it's like a culture designed their game mechanics. Thank it's you. so fascinating. Thanks. <laughs> and so for this game, like how long does a campaign last? Is it a one shot? Is it like a bunch of little episodes? Is this something that you're going to spend like a year playing like D&D? How does that work? Yeah. So for the book, like in the book or the box set, I should say, um, we have a booklet that's all scenarios. So we have a bunch of different scenarios um, and we have one shots in it. We have many campaigns in it. Um, but if you decide to like, you know, extend the campaign, that's totally fine as well. Um, cause in the game itself, like it, we ask you that, uh, we ask you to like take a D eight from the pool. Um, every time you like complete a day, uh, just so that you can see that, you know, there's the passage of time and also like the family's getting more and more stressed. And so that's why we ask you to like take a, take a die out from, from each day. But honestly, like if you want to just like do a house rule and like, you know, play it for longer, um, you don't have to remove the D8. You could just like keep going. So yes, a longer campaign is definitely possible. So funny. Yeah, that family just has more energy and tolerance than the others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. How did you even go about playtesting a game like this? We did a lot of playtesting, luckily, like before the pandemic. So we started working on this in 2018. And then it was around like 20, end of 2019, 2020. That's when um, the pandemic was like, you know, a thing. And so um, I would say like we got a lot of real life playtesting in at conventions, uh, you know, going to one another's homes, um, you know, doing all of that stuff like in person before like we had to switch everything to online. Uh, and so we had to like make a Google Docs and like figure our way out from there. <laughs> Oh, and so as far as playtesting went, I know you mentioned you attempted to do the like wooden moon blocks, but were there any other cuts that ended up getting removed or tweaked while designing and playtesting? Oh my gosh. I think the wooden moon bo blocks, that was like the, the big thing, right? That was like the biggest thing that we had to change because it was just like, okay, this is not going to work. Um, I would say probably the, oh yeah. So the character sheets, initially the character sheets were, um, were a little different in terms of design. So it looked more like a, like a, not a traditional RPG character sheet, but just like typically what you would see with like a, like a character RPG sheet, where it's like everything is just like laid out in front of you. And it's not like in the little segments that we have now. Um, now we have like everything segmented out so that you can place like cards on top of it to cover it up, like cover slots up, uh, when, you know, you take damage and stuff. And, uh, yeah, initially damage was just like a thing that you would track on the character sheet. It was just like a tracker. Uh, but now it's like more tangible. Now it's more like board gamey. It's definitely got like more of a board gamey feel versus like what it was before. That's really cool. I did notice that it looked different than normal RPGs. When did you know that it was like ready to be published? Like you're like, yes, this is good. Let's do it. Let's do this campaign on Kickstarter. I think we were at like its sixth iteration. <laughs> I think it was like version six, version five or six. That's when we were just like, okay, like we should probably get this out there, like, you know, start doing something with it. So we were talking to a few publishers already, like at the time. Um, I think this was 20, end of 2019 or the middle of 2019 when we were just like 
pitching it to publishers. So we were going to like uh, Gen Con and we were talking to different people and there was a, a little less interested. Um, like I feel like initially in 2019, when we were like pitching it to people, there wasn't a lot of interest among publishers. Like people were just like a little skeptical of the idea. Um, sure. but then we talked to like wet ink games and they were just like, Oh yeah, like, you know, this is really exciting. We're like really interested in this. Let's play a game together. And, um, it just so happens that, uh, Brandon from wet ink games, uh, his family is a uh, Ukrainian, Ukrainian immigrants. And so when we play, when we were playing this game with him, um, he felt like connected to the game because it was like about an immigrant experience. And he was just like, oh yeah, I can like definitely relate to this. Like, I feel like I can like, like I could just like totally see this as a game. Like we should definitely like do something together. And so um, after that, because we were all like sort of aligned in like a similar vision, uh, we started working with them uh, through Wet and Games. Um, so it's being co it was being co-published through um, Game in a Curry and Wet Ink Games. And so it was like this this like partnership that we were really excited for. And from there, that's sort of where the, um, where publication came in. That's so amazing. And for anyone who's now officially played your game, what are you hoping they kind of walk away with? Because this game has like so many cool ties to history and the cultures. Yeah. I think, um, I think that like, it's not just, for like Chinese Americans or Chinese Canadians, it's not just for like anyone from like the Chinese diaspora. I think that it's really telling stories about like the immigrant experience. It's telling stories about like, I think it's also for people who are um, from marginalized communities. Um, I think it touches like on a lot of different topics that like we don't necessarily talk about a lot in games. Like we don't see it a lot in games in general, like these themes of like feeling othered or these themes of like feeling marginalized or being marginalized. Like these are things that we don't talk about a lot in games. And I feel like through playing this game, like through playing Zhangshu, like I think that they're going to, players are going to come away with it with like, like this, this sense of like, Oh, like maybe, you know, there are more things that we could think about when it comes to like, um, when it comes to like other people, like communicating with other people, like how do I make them feel like more accepted within my own communities? Right. So there's that idea, but also like, I think the main idea, the core idea of like what we wanted to do with this game was to make it so that we could have something for people of color game like you know have a game for people of color have a game for like people who are marginalized people who uh, are from immigrant families and like just sort of have something for them like have a piece of media for them um because i feel like there's not enough of that in tabletop role-playing games i completely agree honestly when i started reading through the articles like i cannot believe you have one in forbes and huffington post which you're gonna have to tell me <laughs> how that happened but reading that i mean Yes, I am. I am very white. I am Wonder Bread white, but I'm also gay, and I don't see a ton of things represented by that. It's more like in the past year or two that I've started to see mostly RPGs. Like RPGs seem to be the ones kind of expanding in that space. I don't know if it's just like easier than board games, or if it's because it's more storytelling. I don't know why, but just reading through those, it made me so much more motiv motivated to play your game versus like some fantasy RPG. Thank you. Yeah, I think like we've been told enough times where I think a lot of people would say 
hey, like if you don't like a thing, then why don't you make your own? And this is it, right? Like this is us making our own thing. And I mean, we're still probably going to get comments of like, hey, if you don't like a thing, then why don't you make your own thing? But at least now we're just like, okay, well, we're doing it. We're going to keep doing it. And we're going to encourage other people to do it because, you know, this is just our first game. Like, um, that Sen and I have worked together on, like, I'm hoping that like, you know, we're going to make more games out of, um, more games in the future. And also like, we're hoping that like Jiangshi is going to inspire like more designers, uh, more designers of color, more, um, you know, more creators to just like do their own thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be games, but if it can just like inspire more people to want to do their own thing, then that'd be great. That's so amazing. But seriously, how did you end up in Forbes and Huffington Post? (laughs) Connections. Um, So uh, it's actually through Twitter. Uh, So um, I met the the writer for the Huffington Post article through Asians Represent. And so um, actually, I think he found, uh, his name's Jeremy, he found like our stuff uh, through the Asians Represent discord we were talking to asians represent like on their podcast on their live stream and that's sort of like where we started talking um and after that i think it was like a year later uh someone from forbes like contacted us and uh they were just like hey like you know you want to talk about your game like really excited for it like i saw it at pax unplugged like let's do a thing and i was just like yeah sure like whatever you need i'll send you like all the games we have (laughs) that's so cool i love that it is amazing how social media or just like networking really can get you into some cool places yeah absolutely Uh, highly recommend doing it (laughs) (laughs) i love it and so for this game in particular do you have a favorite or favorite and a least favorite experience of this like journey i think the beginning was great like I love brainstorming um, and actually like getting to to write the first draft. Like the first draft is always like the best part, right? Because you're just like throwing all of your ideas into this thing, into this like Google Doc. Um, and then I would say my least favorite part is like editing it, like just like going back and like having to make edits. Um, like that's always the tricky thing, but I've been trying to like not force myself to do it, but like trick myself into doing it where, um, I recently got like a scrum certification so I can talk about this, but like basically trying to take all the tasks that feel like undoable and like, just like so big and large and just like scary and like cutting it down into little pieces and like attacking it that way. So, um, instead of saying like, you know, you have to fix this whole section on, I don't know, character creation, uh, just sort of like breaking that down into like segments. And that way I can be like, oh, okay, I can hone in on, I don't know, changing the way that we do skills in, I don't know, whatever character creation thing. Um, So it makes it less scary and less like, frankly, annoying. Because like sometimes when you do like when you're like listing off the things that you have to do, it's just like, Oh my God, there's like so much I have to do. Uh, but like, yeah, once I, once we figured out like how to assign tasks and like make tasks a little more manageable, it, it became a lot easier. That's awesome. Actually, you know, based off your comment of just like character creation, a uh, question for like this or like any RPG or project you've worked on, how do you like kind of balance the mechanics of like class options or characters? Like how do you make them equally interesting? 
it's just I look at like D and D and look at like this person who has a sword versus this person who's like a wizard that can do like all this magic, and yet people choose to be both. They don't always gravitate towards the really cool wizard. Like, how do you make them equal? How do you design these characters? Oh, good question. Yeah, I would say like, um, it's it's dependent on the genre, right? So um, for genre specifically, like we wanted to make like very human characters with flaws and problems and that's where the hopes and dreams come in right so it's like uh you know the dad's hopes and dreams might be to uh make the restaurant go on forever and it's not just that i want this restaurant to be like very good i also want this restaurant to win um like you know a ridiculous award for being the best restaurant in san francisco or something like that right so like having those kinds of like hooks really helps and making them unique to each character. So it's not just like, oh, like, you know, this character's got something like more exciting than the other character. Like everyone always loves playing grandma in our games uh, because grandma's got like the funniest stuff. Like grandma's uh, has a pack of cigarettes that she smokes. And she also like her hopes and dreams are like to go on a cruise. Um, like she's just like this ridiculous character, uh, but she's also like relatable, right? Like we all know like a grandmother like that. Um, whereas like, you know, the the mother might have like um like she might have something that's like similar to that where uh she probably wants you know she probably wants to like just close up the restaurant and just like do something else completely different like maybe that's like what her hopes and dreams are and also on top of that like she has psychic abilities and she also like can commune with the dead and like you know all these other things so I think like making sure that each character has like their own hook, like that's, that's sort of um, the most important thing for like making sure that they're all equally as exciting to play. Oh, for sure. I'm guessing people tend to gravitate towards similarities they see in themselves or maybe the opposite. Cause I know part of the reason people like role-playing games is so they can explore other parts of themselves or different things that they maybe aren't or want to be. Right. Exactly. How long did it take like from the inspiration to the game publication for Zhangxi? Oh gosh. Okay. So we started in 2018. Um, we started talking about it. We did brainstorming. We started like working on the actual draft. I think like mid early 2018 to like late 2018 and then 2019 was when we started pitching it to other publishers um and then we were still like working on the document we were still doing like development and play testing and it wasn't until i would say like 2020 i think our kickstarter was in 2020 and then like there were all these like delays because of covid like honestly in a perfect world like this would have taken like two years. I think this took us like two and a half to three years to yeah. to make from design to um, to actually like getting it out there into people's hands. I mean, honestly, it could have been a lot worse with COVID. Mm-hmm. But no. Yep. Ugh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're writing, how much do you leave up to the DM? Because I know with RPGs, sometimes it's very like handholdy. Other times it's just like, all right, hopefully you have a bomb ass DM because this person's going to just like take the little bit we have and roll with it. Yeah. So for Jansha, it's more of like a collab, a collaborative storytelling game. Like it's very much inspired by like powered by the apocalypse, like games like that. 
where um, a lot of the games, like a lot of the storytelling is not just like all on the GM or the DM. Um, the storytelling comes from like the players as well. So uh, for this specific game, like the way that we structured our scenarios, we made sure that there were bullet points. So we always have that table. We usually have that table when we when I've played uh, this game or other games. Uh, and maybe it's just like the people I surround myself with, but the players always just like want to do their own thing, right? Like they love just like going off and like doing whatever. And so uh, we made sure that there is this framework where everyone knows that you have a restaurant, you have like, you know, all the stuff. Most of the play is going to happen at the restaurant uh, and parts of Chinatown, but most of it is going to happen in the restaurant. Okay. The players can't stray that far. All right. We have everyone in one place, kind of. Um, but they're still going to want to do like their own thing, right? They're probably going to, instead of like doing their chores, they're probably going to want to like, I don't know, fuss around in the back rooms or, you know, yeah, or flirt with some customer or something. Right. Exactly. So they want to do their own thing. So instead of making sure that it's like, you know, it's structured in the way where, you know, uh, where, everything has to hit at a certain point. Um, we made sure that it's like bulleted points so that the GM, when they're reading through this, they know exactly what the plot is. And it's just going to be like a quick summary of like, okay, I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to do, do that and make sure like all the players know what's going on, but they can still do their own thing, right? Like they can still like advance in whatever sort of silliness they want to do. Um, but it's up to like the GM to like convey these specific plot points. Very cool. And then you have it broken out into like the daytime, nighttime plot points as well. Yes, exactly. And for you just as a designer, do you personally enjoy designing games that are more open world or specific narratives? I think a little bit of both. So like um, when it comes to like writing like a narrative, like that's like that's more like fiction writing, right? That's when the fiction writing brain kicks in. And it's just like, okay, like I want to write a full story and people are going to, you know, really enjoy this world that I've built. Um, and there's no room for any exploration <laughs> or anyone else to like say otherwise, uh, which is fun for me because I have like a lot of control over it. But at the same time, I think when you're designing for like a role-playing game, it's good to have it more open world. It's good to have it like so that it's easy to run for the GM and it's easy to play with the players. So the GM doesn't get frustrated if like a certain plot point doesn't hit um, and the players still have access to like whatever they want to do. Totally makes sense. As a player, which do you prefer to play? Oh God, I am the most chaotic player. Like I love playing chaos. So like anytime I get to like, just do whatever, like I would love to do that. Um, but also it depends on like the, the situation, right? Like if they're, if we're playing like a horror game, like, yes, I will like be fully in like horror mode. If the table wants us to be in fully like, you know, horror mode. I mean, that's also like a part of like calibration and session zeros and like, you know, making sure that everyone's on the same page. Right. Um, but if like, we're allowed to be like silly, if we're like allowed to play like a ridiculous game, then I'm going to go full, like ridiculous. I'm not going to make any sense in like any of, the, <laughs> any of my playing decisions. I love that so much. It sounds way more fun to do it that way anyway. Right. And like, there are, t there is a time and place for like horror and seriousness and like drama. Um, and I think that's okay. Uh, like, you know, it does make sense to just like 
say to everyone, hey, like today we're going to do like a dramatic game. Like everything is going to be like full on drama. Um, so like try to stay as serious as possible, but still like interjects like your own personality and your, your own humor into it uh, wherever you can. But making sure that like everyone is having a good time at the table, like that's sort of like where setting expectations comes from, I think. I could see how someone might get annoyed if they weren't prepared for a specific type of person at their table. Right, exactly. And it's like, you know, just being respectful to like other players and like respectful of like, you know, the type of game that we're playing. Like, I don't expect everyone to play Zhangxia as like a funny horror comedy. Uh, some players might want to actually do like the dramatic stuff. Like Sen, he's definitely more of like the dramatic player uh, or the dramatic GM. And so like anytime we're playing, I'm just like, okay, like we're going to have a dramatic time we're gonna like you know make it scary make it spooky um i'm gonna try not to like interject too many laughs into this uh but if i'm running the game then i just want my players to like be silly and like have a good time with weird awkward family dynamics i feel like i would be playing a part of your game because i am not (laughs) a serious individual by any means so i think i would enjoy that it, they're very silly. They turn into like Bob's Burgers real fast. Oh my God. I want to see that movie still. I'm such a Bob's fan. Yeah. I'm very excited for it. Oh my goodness. So as far as like designing, do you prefer to design like around a set system or like in this game where you kind of created a system, which is your preference? Um, it depends on the system. So I think that I always go back to PBTA, like powered by the apocalypse, like Apocalypse World, I really enjoy the system because it's so simple and it's just like so streamlined. It's it's just there, right? Um, I'm okay with D&D. I'm okay with Pathfinder. Like I think like the, the D20 system is like fine, but not my favorite. Um, so I prefer to go back to like Powered by the Apocalypse and like just playing around with that kind of stuff and like using it as like maybe a base. And then from there, if I want to like make my own thing, then, you know, just like throw in uh, my own thing, right? Sort of like making a soup. If you're like starting from like a PBTA base, then I get to like throw in my other ingredients to make this like stew or soup or whatever. Oh, that sounds tasty. I could use some <laughs> soup right now, honestly. And it's like not even lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, right. We have an hour to go. Oh, kind man. Of. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> and when you are writing, I know you probably you probably collaborate with the majority of the projects you've worked on. Is there any like tips you could give for how to collaborate, especially because, I mean, you're essentially like writing a novel almost with yes. another person? Yeah, I think um, so different iterations of the game. Like I feel like uh, it, it is a little harder to like work with other people sometimes, but like if you are doing this thing where you're like basically sectioning different spots off in the game. Like if you're sectioning off, like, okay, you're going to do character creation, you're going to do like, you know, this other thing, um, then, you know, you sort of have this way of like working where it's both efficient and effective, where it's just like, you know, you're doing it side by side. And then later on, um, when you're doing play tests, you could just like, realign or recalibrate by like doing the playtest and seeing if everything makes sense to both of you. Um, it's easiest when you're like working with two people. If it's like more than that, it gets a little tricky. Um, Cause then you have to have like lots and lots of meetings uh, just so that you're all aligned on like what the vision is, what the, you know, the system is and like how it plays out. 
And uh, I think that's like the main thing, right? Just like making sure that you're having meetings, making sure that you're like all aligned in the vision and also making sure that you're like all play testing the same thing. So that that way uh, you all know how this thing works. Oh, for sure. And I'm guessing you probably need someone to be in charge of just making sure it sounds like a singular person created this whole book. So it's not like a bunch of different tenses and voices and yes. you just like need someone to meld it all together. I'm sure editors on RPGs are just extraordinary. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like Sen and I, we try to make a style guide. It always falls through. We just like end up writing like stuff. Um, like a style guide in the beginning is always very helpful. We just like always forget to do it. Uh, so that's something I'm working on. Uh, <laughs> that's like a little bit of like a self-improvement thing that we have to work on. But uh, other than that, like, honestly, we have our weekly meetings. We just like meet up every so often, um, talk about what we're doing and, you know, get right into it and go back into like play testing or setting up times to to talk to like the people that we've play tested with. Um so I think that that's really important just to like make sure that we're all doing the same thing. Oh, for sure. And I know with like tabletop game, like board game designers, one of the pieces of advice is always like, oh, play a ton of different games. Do you feel like that's similar with the RPG space? Like playing a bunch of different RPGs helps you as a designer and a writer? Yes, absolutely. I think um, I started off playing like a whole bunch of different games when we were doing like conventions and stuff. I was always going to like smaller conventions to, uh, to either play test other people's games or like to play like already published games. Um, so that gave me like a good idea of like what other games are like. Um, cause I think that like, sometimes I think it's easy to fall into that trap of, I have played D and D for X amount of years and I am now automatically an expert on TTRPGs as a whole, because I have played D and D for X amount of years, which is not necessarily the case. You might be an expert in D&D, but you're not an expert on other types of tabletop role-playing games. Like I think the the medium of tabletop role-playing games, it's like so wide and it's so like varied that sometimes like it's good to just like explore other options because, uh, one way that a person plays, you know, one game might be different from you know, the way that they play another game. So like play styles vary, um, you know, rules vary, different ways of like experiencing or expressing yourself can vary uh, based on like, you know, different player groups. Um, So I think, yeah, like, I think that is sort of like a pitfall in like the TTRPG world where like a lot of people, they would assume that they are very good at TTRPGs by just playing one type of game. And that's, that's not always necessarily the case. <laughs> so funny. And so you personally, what kind of advice would you offer to RPG designers? Uh, definitely play a lot of games, but also I think it's good to check out like other mediums as well. Like not just tabletop role-playing games, like also check out board games, also check out novels, also watch movies, uh, also watch TV shows or like whatever you're most interested in, like, you know, go to a museum, um, like check out other types of media and see what they do and take inspiration from that and try to integrate it into your own design. Um, you could do that. 
And you could also like create stuff, right? Just like write a whole bunch of stuff. It doesn't have to be good uh, or it doesn't have to be good to you, but it is a practice of writing. It's just like the practice of writing is just like doing things for an extended period of time and eventually just like taking a break from it, going back to it and seeing if you like it. Um, Because otherwise you're never going to make a thing. Just like make up a whole lot of things and then eventually something's going to stick is basically my advice. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. As far as, so when I read off all the crazy credits in the very beginning, one of the things I noticed you'd worked on was Betrayal at House on the Hill, which technically board game, but also very Mm RPG-like. How is it working on that versus just a traditional RPG? So um, I worked on The Haunts. So I was a haunt writer with a team of, I think it was, oh gosh, there was a lot of us. I think it was maybe eight of us eight or 10 of us, but we were all haunt writers. Um, and, uh, the assignment was to just basically like work on the, the trader's tome and the, you know, the regular book, which it's been a while. So I just like completely have erased that from my mind, but it's, um, it is kind of like writing a narrative, right? Like it's writing uh, a story of what's going to happen when this haunt gets triggered while you're still, you know, adding rules to it. And so I think it's very similar to, it's actually quite similar to like writing rules for a TTRPG just because like, you know, you're doing narrative, but also like here are some rules that you have to follow. And those rules, if, you know, one outcome happens, then this uh, one, if one outcome mechanically happens, then this narrative is going to happen versus if this other outcome happens, then this other bit of narrative happens. Um, so I think that it's very much related to like writing TTRPGs and writing like other types of, uh, like choose your own path, choose your own adventure type of type of narratives. Awesome. Yeah. I was just kind of curious. Do you have any uh, projects that fans should be looking out for then? Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, so Yansu Kim and I, we are working on a game for, uh, Darrington press. Uh, it is called guardians of matrimonia and it is a board game where you are playing fantasy wedding planners who are trying to put out fires. Uh, and at the end, regardless of if you do well or not, you get a Yelp review, but it's not Yelp. It's like a fantasy Yelp. Um, so that's one of the games that's uh, coming out soon. Uh, I also have another game that's coming out through Trick or Treat Studios, uh, also with Yansu Kim and uh, Eric Slauson. Um, and I have like three other games with Seth. <laughs> So Senfun Lim and I, we have like a bunch of different games that are coming out. Uh, we have Revenants, which is basically um, another 1920s slash 1910s historical game where you're playing uh, the undead. So you're Revenants who have come back to life and you have to solve your own murder and you have to figure out this big event uh, that's about to happen and how it's correlated with your murder. Or sorry, your death. It's not necessarily a murder. It could just be like you died. Uh, And so like uh, that is, um, and you're also like in a, it's based off like the subway system as well. So you have to like travel via via the subway or the metro uh, because we have two settings. We have Paris, France, and we also have uh, New York, New York. So you can choose which setting you want to play in. Um, And uh, it's a time loop. So it's the idea of like being underground, like on that, you know, on that loop under the city, but also there is a time loop. 
And so if you don't solve the big mysterious event by the end of the time loop, then the time loop restarts. And then you have like four time loops before you're stuck in this, in this sort of like limbo-esque area forever. Um, Jeez. I'm getting serious groundhog vibes right now, except very creepy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love. (laughs) What other games? Uh, We have two others. So one of them is One Night Only, where you are... uh, you're at a high school reunion, uh, but you have flashbacks to when you were in high school in your final year and you're about to graduate and um, you're trying to form a band. And basically your final year is uh, you trying to put this band together to put on a show. And as you're doing this, like as you're like going through the different weeks, um, you're putting together like a poster, like a band poster. So you're like cutting out from a magazine and like pasting stuff into like this piece of paper, this map basically that we're providing you like a template. And you're flashing back and forth between like the reunion to like then. Um, but at the reunion, you obviously know that the br- the band is going to break up. So it's sort of like this sad ennui type of thing that's going on there. Um, and our final game that we have planned uh, is another Chinese diaspora game uh, called Tindang. And uh, basically that translates to Sky Lantern. And uh, imagine, if you will, uh, gig economy in space. So that's basically what the game is. Okay. Uh, but it's like set with like a Chinese diaspora. So um, you are on a spaceship that is uh, a sentient program. Basically, it's got an AI attached to it that is programmed to act like one of the Chinese gods. So they could like be very spiteful towards you and not want to travel anywhere or take you to like another planet that you didn't even ask for. And so you have to like pray to it. You have to like make sure that it's happy. Um, And also you have this like gig that you have to fulfill and uh, you have all these debts that you have to settle in order to retire at the end of the game. I love how different all of these games sound. It's so fun. Thank you. Yes, they're very different from one another. Um, but I think mechanically, they're, they have some sort of similarities. Gotcha. Yeah, mm-hmm. just from like listening to you talk, I feel like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Cabin in the Woods. It's kind of like a mm-hmm. horror sci-fi. I want you to write an RPG for it now. Because <laughs> you know, like the whole thing is like, whatever they touch is what happens. And now I'm like, you should do that. <laughs> That's not a thing. You should that. do that. <laughs> I would love that so much. (laughs) Oh my goodness. All right. Well, for my last question, I'd like to know if magically you are now the designer of a game that was created by someone else, what game would you choose? Oh my God. 100% A Quiet Ear by Avery Alder. It is genius. Like that game is gorgeous. It's just like, it's, it's so good. Um, I don't know if you ever played it. Um, but no, I don't know about it. Okay. It is like the most beautiful game. Um, so you're basically creating, uh, sort of like a small, I would say like a, a small community and, um, or like a small town and you're, uh, developing this community over years. So, or over, uh, seasons, I think. And, uh, as it grows, as it develops, like maybe like there's, um, you know, a battle that happens or like maybe like the, the townsfolk get resentful of one another. Um, there are like all these factions that happen over time. And it's basically just like a map making game. So you're like 
you're uh, with other players, it's GMless. You're creating a map that's um, that's made out of props. So uh, prompts are from the stack of cards, and you just generate this map based on that. And uh, yeah, it's just like such a beautiful and weird game. Like I, I highly recommend it. We'll definitely have to check it out. I mean, now that you have magically designed it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 41, Jingxi, Blood in the Banquet Hall. And thanks again, Banana, for joining us. For anyone trying to find you, where can you be reached? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And I think YouTube. Yes, I'm also on YouTube uh, at Banana Chan Games. And uh, you can find my company, Game in a Curry, at Game in a Curry. And uh, I think on all of the same platforms except for YouTube and TikTok. And we also have a website, www.gameinacurry.com. Wow, you had that memorized. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And I'm your host. Danielle Reynolds, and you can find me on social media like Instagram, Twitter, under the username Token Gamer, and that's G A Y M E R. Well, thanks again for joining me, and I am super looking forward to seeing all these future projects from you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time. <laughs>